Hello and welcome to Connected, episode 202. It is brought good. to you this week by Text Expander, Simple Contacts, and Anchor. I am your host, Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined by two marvelous hosts as well. Corner number one, we have Federico Vitici. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm great. I'm just, uh, you know, uh, coming up for air after typing my iOS review for like 10 days straight. Ooh. So, uh, yeah, that's fun. I'm glad you could take a break and join <laughs> us today. And we're also joined yes. by returning special guest, John Voorhees. Hey, Stephen, how you doing? Oh, no. He's here? I oh, no. I can't pretend to be you this time, though. Uh, is that what you were trying to do last time? <laughs> I did such a good job last time. Your Arrivederci John was really on yeah, point. I, uh, you did a really good I, I job. I knew you'd like that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Stephen, what are we talking about today? What's, uh, what's uh, the topic list? Uh, do you have any? We have some topics and we have some Q&A because it's the summer and sometimes topics are hard to come by. And uh, we have follow-up. We're going to start with follow-up. We're going to start with your Sonos problems and maybe a solution. Mm, not really. Um, so I was able to find on the Sonos forums a few people having the same issue that I have, which to, uh, you know, to sort of uh, for context, uh, we talked about this last week. My problem is not being unable to stream music from the iPhone to the Sonos. Uh, that is working as long as I select the Sonos as a destination, as a, as a playback device from the first... Um, tile of control center that works so streaming directly from the phone to the sonos works my problem is if you treat the sonos one in my case as an airplay 2 device uh as an independent um audio device so if i ask uh, siri for example to play music in the balcony it doesn't work uh, because it says that it's unable to connect to the sonos and i've been able to find uh, a few people having the same problem I tweeted about it, and the Sonos account found my tweet, which was not a public tweet. It was a response to somebody else. Uh, so I assume they have some real professional, you know, Twitter saved searches going yeah. on. Um, they found my my tweet, and they were they responded. Uh, they got in touch with me over DM, and they asked me to give them some details. And I gave them the details, and then they said, "Well, we need you to run a diagnostic tool and give us more information about the mesh." Wi-Fi system that you have. I sent them the diagnostics and the details about the router and the Wi-Fi. And then they asked me to do something that I honestly I don't have the time to do right now. Um, so they they discovered in the diagnostics that I was the, the Sonos One connects to the satellite device instead of the main mm-hmm. one, the main Orbi yeah. unit. Uh, and they asked me to unplug the speaker and plug it into the main unit uh, which is in, is inside the house and re restart my entire network so that means powering off the modem and <laughs> restarting everything and then running the diagnostics again um honestly this is going to take me like at least half an hour which i don't have time to do right now during the week so probably in the weekend i will do as they say and i will follow up again i suppose next week or uh you know if, if i have time or not honestly i don't have i don't know right now i just don't want to because it sounds like a lot of work yeah that's there's a qa department for that kind of thing <laughs> uh it, it happens sometimes yep. so well hope hopefully that helps solve it it seems like a weird thing but um i don't I don't think I understand like the intricacies of 
airplay networking to say if that answer well, actually makes sense or not. Well, let me tell you, if only the company that makes, you know, the AirPlay protocol and the iPhone and the iPad and the Mac uh, was also in the router business, oh. <laughs> that would oh, probably wow. Too soon, man. solve a lot of problems. <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> Just need a... If only. Imagine, imagine that crazy idea. The company that makes your electronics also makes your Wi-Fi. Wouldn't that be mm. nice? I, mm, I don't want to mm-hmm. go off on that, that tangent today. Uh, so, John, I'm going to see you this weekend. We are. You're uh, you're speaking this weekend. You've got and you're you've got your IMAX on display in the Detroit area, right? Yeah. So the Henry Ford Museum. Uh, spoken about them before. They took the 13 colors of IMAX G3 that I collected. Uh, they're part of their permanent collection. Uh, I also interviewed their technology curator on the podcast like a couple years ago about the Apple One. Um, she's awesome. So anyways, this weekend is the Detroit Maker Fair. It takes place on the grounds of the Henry Ford Museum. So I'm going to be there for the Maker Fair. I'm speaking Saturday and Sunday towards the end of the day about uh, podcasting, how to get started, how to make money in it, all those sorts of things. Uh, and John, you're going to come up. And so if you want to come see John this weekend, or me, or a bunch of awesome other nerds making stuff, the Detroit Maker Fair seems like it's going to be a, a hop in place. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. I've been to the Maker Fair in Detroit a couple of times. I went to the very first one, and I think maybe the third one, and took my kids, and it's a lot of fun. I mean, they have, in years past, they've had things like, you know, 3D printer displays and demonstrations, people pouring lead and iron into vats to make all kinds of tools. They had a tornado storm chaser vehicle there that you could tour. Yes. All kinds of cr- really neat, crazy stuff. Um, so it's a lot. It's a lot of fun, and it looks like the weather's going to be good. Although a little, maybe a little bit warm. And so Stephen and I are going to be hanging out on. Uh, I'll be there Saturday. I won't be there Sunday. But Stephen, I think you're there Saturday and Sunday, right? Both days. Uh, so yeah. So if you're in the area, come out. And uh, the IMAX will be on display, I believe, through the fall as part of a uh, a new exhibit uh, called "Looking Through Things." Um, so they're uh, a part of a larger exhibit about transparency and translucency in technology products dating way back to like World War II, which is, which is bonkers. So that that's, uh, at the museum. So if you want to go by there and see that, uh, say hi to my old IMAX. Um, and I'm planning to have a video after the weekend kind of showing it all. So I look for that too. It'll be fun. I'm looking forward to seeing you, John. I've only, I've seen you like every Three or four weeks all summer. I'm going to be really sad when I don't see you. Yeah, I'll have to come down to Memphis sometime, I guess. Yeah, we got to see each other in September, but we'll see each other in October in Chicago. So, <laughs> right. close enough. Mm-hmm. Seeing your old computers um, under new ownership must be something like when when, a, when an ex goes to the wedding of their old partner. <laughs> and they're like, aren't you doing nicely when you're new in life? I don't know. I've never yeah. seen a computer that used to be mine in someone else's possession. Oh, that's not true. I sold, that feels, I sold my... That must be... Must feel kind of weird for me. I sold my iMac, an old (laughs) iMac to my brother. Uh, Kyle's the Gray has my old MacBook Pro, but I've never seen it. But yeah, I mean, these were in in my collection. Now they're in their collection. But I think I said at the time, like if if I couldn't keep them, this is where I wanted them to go. And so I'm more excited than anything that they're going to be like on display. Like that's really cool. So well, I'll be there to. I'll be. I'm sorry. I'll be there to document the reunion of the iMacs and Steven. Yeah, John. If I start like trying to like break the glass and like climb in the exhibit. (laughs) Just uh, try to stop me, please. Gotcha. Gotcha. I feel like you would be more gentle than uh, museum security. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. 
All right, we got a lot more stuff to talk about, but first, I want to tell you about our first sponsor. This episode of Connected is brought to you by Text Expander from Smile. Text Expander multiplies your team's productivity. It makes up-to-date shared knowledge available instantly. Using Text Expander, you can ensure that all your team's common responses are accessible and searchable through simple abbreviations and keyboard shortcuts, written and edited by your best writer, so you can have someone who's really gifted at this stuff write a response that your whole team uses. This is available on multiple platforms, macOS, iOS, Windows, this thing called the web. Wherever you are, you can get at your snippets. And they're updated immediately everywhere and when modified. If you're on a team, Text Expander will change your working life and leave more time for what you do best. Plus, for large teams, Text Expander supports single sign-on and grouping accounts. If you have different teams that need access to different snippets, that's easy to do. They include identity providers like Octo, One Login, and G Suite, reducing the time it takes to onboard large numbers of users. I've used Text Expander personally as long as I can remember. My computer feels broken without it. But at work, we use this to have uh, shared sponsor names. And so some sponsors like have their names spelled different ways or different capitalizations. And we've started using this, so I know that Text Expander has a capital E in the middle of it. I don't get that wrong in an email. So visit textexpander.com slash podcast right now to learn more about Text Expander. Our thanks to Text Expander from Smile for their support of this show and Relay FM. So we've got a little more MacBook Pro stuff to talk about. Federico, I know you've just been itching to talk about throttling MacBook Pros. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you were texting me the other night. You say, can we record right now? I have a lot to get off my chest. And I said, no, you yeah. got to save it for Wednesday, man. We record on Wednesday. Hold your yeah. horses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was really, I was really anticipating this discussion about you know um, keyboards and uh, you know hot CPUs and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. That's my jam. Mm-hmm. That's totally. So let's do it. Uh, what's what's happening with the MacBook Pro, Stephen? A couple of things. There was this video. It seemed like the i9 in particular was being throttled once it started getting hot, like to a degree that was surprising. Uh, in a very uneven and heavy-handed manner. Apple came out yesterday with a statement saying, there's an issue with the firmware on the machines, here's a software update. That's only been about 24 hours, but it seems like like these these the YouTubers that were really kind of at the forefront of this have re-benchmarked the machines, and things are faster, they're where they should be. They still throttle a machine this thin and light, with a six-core i9 in it is going to throttle, but it is far more acceptable, far more reasonable in the way that it's doing it, and more predictable, which is the big thing. The The benchmarks were all over the place before, and it seems like Apple has worked this out. Uh, this update does apply also to the 13-inch. Apple said the this firmware issue was true for all 2018 MacBook Pros. It seems like maybe what happened is they do all this internal testing, the final firmware was not applied at the factory. There was some breakdown there. And it's it's unclear. Apple didn't address that directly, but that seems to be what happened. Because in testing, they didn't do this. But Apple like reached out to these YouTubers and these reporters working on this and trying to figure out what was going on. And I think that's, you know, while the problem is weird, like I, I, hopefully whatever happened in that that confusing middle step where the, the wrong firm or an old outdated firmware was put on these machines at the factory. They should fix that and get a handle on whatever happened there. But Apple, I think, I think they do this a lot more than we see where they do work with 
YouTubers and writers and and other people in the media when there's an issue like this because they want to understand what's going on, try to get to the bottom of it, working with people who are experiencing it. And that that to me is really encouraging. Like I walk away from this encouraged that Apple listened to its users, that they didn't just write it off and that they they actually found a mistake and they corrected it and they were pretty transparent about what the mistake was. I, I still think there's room for a debate, like not all machines, especially pro machine, need to be thin and light. That's a different conversation. But it seems like at least for now these machines are much more predictable in the way they act under load than than they were before. Right. It was really interesting to kind of watch this play out because there was that initial YouTube video that you mentioned. And I think that the that 15-inch MacBook Pro is throttling down all the way down to like 800 megahertz, I want to say, which is, yeah, significantly slower. I mean, you know, computers from years and years and years ago were were uh, that speed. So it was, a, it was a big issue. It seemed to be something that happened when a machine was running under load for significant amounts of time. And then right before Apple issued the software update, a bunch of Redditors were on the case and they were trying to figure out exactly what was going on. And they had discovered that they thought it was something that could be corrected in software. Really, I think literally an hour or two maybe before uh, Apple released their update. So, you know, credit to them to kind of tracking down the problem on their own and, and realizing that it was a software issue and not mm-hmm. necessarily not a hardware issue, and, as it turns and like out. like I said, I still think there's clearly there's room for improvement on Apple's part and like the, the thermal management on thin notebooks. Like a six core i9 in this chassis is probably pushing it. And um, uh, I watched a video last night of someone comparing the, the i9 MacBook Pro to like an i9 like gaming PC, which is like thick and heavy and has LEDs. Like it's kind of weird. But they do perform much better because they have better cooling capacity. So, like, the MacBook Pro is doing the best that it can given its design, where that was not the case before. But I still think that there's room in Apple's lineup for a notebook that isn't this thin. If it means you can run them faster or you get, you know, a real GPU, like a, a, a good mobile GPU in them, because uh, that's still you look at all yes. these benchmarks the GPUs Apple is using in these things, even on the high end, it's still not spectacular. Like there, there are better options out there, and even staying within the AMD side of things, because um, uh, Apple just refuses to use Nvidia chips because they are in some sort of like cold war with them. But uh, you know, it's it's um, it's promising that that these machines, at the very least, will work as advertised because they weren't doing that before. Uh, so I, I think I mentioned on the show last week that I had ordered a base model, 13-inch, with an i5 and 8 gigs of RAM. And um, I very quickly realized that that machine was not the one I actually needed. <laughs> uh, just because it was not powerful enough for what I was <laughs> wanting to do with it. Like I said, I've said this a bunch of places. I don't use a notebook on a regular basis, but when I do, it's for audio, uh, some video when I'm on the road. And as cheap as, as they're not cheap, but the cheaper base model machine was attractive to me for budgetary purposes, but uh, wasn't going to cut it. So I ended up yesterday swapping it out. The, my local Apple store had an i7 with 16 gigs of RAM, just like randomly, uh, randomly in stock, which was cool. And so I ended up picking um, picking that up, and I've only had it a day, so I don't have a lot of like real time with it. But I can say that. The the SSD speed is immediately noticeable. Uh, it's it's in, it's 
in line with what the iMac Pro does, that T2 chip and those RAID mod or those rated SSD modules, the storage is just so crazy fast on these new machines. And that means every single thing feels faster. You know, I think we all remember when we got our first SSD uh, computer, right? Like it maybe it was probably a MacBook Air for a lot of people or a MacBook Pro. And that first time you boot up from an SSD, you're just like, oh my gosh, I didn't know a computer could be this fast. And even though the CPU may have been the same from your previous machine or not that much faster, the, the data coming off the disk is just critical to so many things. And you can feel that in the new machine that so much stuff is faster because the SSD is so fast. Uh, the keyboard feels fine. Like, you know, I had a, 20, a, a 2016 for a while and it, it feels softer than those and uh, it's definitely quieter than the 2016. Uh, you know, fingers crossed that it holds up. Um, I've got Apple Care on it. It's a secondary machine. And so if I have problems, it's not that big of a deal. But uh, so far, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to go out and go to go so far to say that I like the keyboard because I really prefer the Magic keyboard, that external uh, one they sell with the Macs, and Federico I think you used with an iPad. But uh, mm-hmm. it's way better than the 2016 keyboard, I think, in terms of feel and sound. And we'll see how it holds up. Um, John, you've got a 2016 MacBook Pro, right? I do, and I have had problems with sticking keys. Um, nothing that's that's ever required me to take it into the store for fixing it. They've always kind of dislodged themselves, but I do, I have this constant tension, especially if I like go sit out in the backyard or something to work, you know, any speck of dust I see float by it, it gives me the willies a little bit, but I, I was wondering, Stephen, what do you think the display? Because the display is true tone now, right? It is uh, the display and the touch bar both use true tone, which of course basically just matches the color temperature of the screen to the room. Uh, I have it on on the notebook. Um, I don't do a lot of design work, and when I do, it's on my iMac Pro. So in you know, I think if I were like doing a bunch of photos in Photoshop or something, I would turn it off, just like I would turn uh, night mode off or what? What is the what is it mm-hmm. called when it changes at night? Um, night shift. I, I turn that off too if I'm like doing photo corrections right. or something. Uh, it's fine, you know. It's 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 very similar to an iPad where like. It's not noticeable until you don't have it. So, like, if I'm working on my notebook and then I sit down at my desk, the iMac Pro looks blue because the iMac Pro doesn't have that. Um, this is a feature that, like, yeah, I probably like Face ID. Like, once it's in one product, you know, you just know it's coming to all the others. And there was there was a rumor that the next iMac is going to have some sort of screen upgrade. It's totally True Tone will be there, I think. Um, it's nice, uh, but if you're a professional user who like colors really important to you, it's it's easy to turn off. It's just a checkbox in the display's preference pane. Interestingly, it does give you the option when you set up the Mac as new, and so just like you do on iOS, it says True Tone is on. You know, tap here, click here to turn it off, and then you see it go from like a nice warm color to a blue color. You're like, oh, leave it on, you know, and. Uh, so they've they've inherited that from iOS, <laughs> yeah. And uh, so far, it's, I mean, it's fine. You know, I haven't like I said this weekend's gonna be the first time I've really spent uh, a lot of time working on. It. I basically have just set, set it up so far. But um, in 24 hours, no key right. is stuck. So I guess that's that's good. Yeah, that's a positive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got that going for you. Yeah, it got something. So you know, I think uh, it's so it's so wild. These machines have had such a rough 
entry into the world, right? You you automatically had the keyboard drama where Apple said uh, it's just for sound. Like an internal document says, well, it's actually for protecting against debris. And then you had the throttling issue, and then Apple seems to have fixed that. It just seems like they can't win with the MacBook Pro. And I, I think there are a bunch of users, and I would count myself in this camp, where like I, I got rid of my 2016, I went back to an old machine, and the 2018, the specs are what won me over. Like having a quad-core 13-inch laptop has been like what I've wanted for years and years. And now I've got one, and so I'm willing to put up with like having to buy a bunch of USB-C cables finally or dealing with a dongle or risking the keyboard because I finally have the power I want and the size that I want. And I think a lot of people are like that. I think a lot of people who use the MacBook Pro as their only machine probably tempted by that 6-core i7 or i9 because you've not been able to have that kind of power in a notebook before. Uh, you can get more cores in a MacBook Pro than you can in an iMac right now. And I think a lot of people, uh, just judging from people talking on Twitter and a couple emails I've gotten, that people who skipped the 2016 and 2017 may finally be on board with the new design in 2018. And I don't know if that if the specs are like a good enough goodwill for people to sort of get back on board with the MacBook Pro, but it sure feels like that a lot of people are still concerned about the design about the keyboard, about the battery life, about the ports. Like, there's a lot not to like about these machines. The touch bar, you know, is still, uh, in my in my experience at least, not super useful most of the time. And I'm paying a premium to have it on there. And so I just I wonder what's next for the MacBook Pro. You know, they're not going to roll back to having USB-A ports and SD card slot and that sort of stuff. But I do wonder what's next. I do wonder what lessons they're learning from this. Uh, I would hope that you know, whatever is after this, you know, the next time they redesign the body, which maybe 2019 or 2020, if you look historically, that's about how often they do it, then uh, then maybe that machine would be a little more well-rounded, where this machine seems like a pretty extreme computer for what is what has got to be its, its, you know, sort of like mainstream flagship device, right? Like the MacBook, the one-port MacBook can be extreme because... Its whole identity is that it's thin and light, uh, and you to get that you give up things like a Thunderbolt controller and a fan, and you get one port. But if you want thin and light, like that's the perfect machine for you. You know, my wife has one, and every time I pick it up, I'm like, I really want one of these, and then I, I realize I don't have room in my life for a computer like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I fall. I'm kind of skeptical as well. I mean, my experience has been okay and I generally like my 2016 MacBook Pro but it's the whole situation surrounding these computers has caused me to really rethink what my next Mac will be like I'm not gonna buy a 2018 model I just don't need it right now but but I have thought long and hard about why did I get this machine mm. in the first place and what's the best machine for me next time around and I think I would probably go with an iMac Pro yeah. instead just because I mean I'd still have you know I'd still have a laptop somewhere there whether it's this 2016 that just hangs around assuming it survives or something maybe uh, a little more lightweight in terms of specs that I can take on the road with me if I do need to do something like audio editing but 
you know, I, I bought this 2016 MacBook Pro primarily because at the time I was still commuting downtown to Chicago and it was useful to be able to have a Mac on the train and that sort of thing. But I, you know, I work mostly from home now. And so other than the occasional trip, I don't have the needs for portability that I used to have. So I think I would probably go with something a little more robust and seemingly so far more reliable in the, you know, the iMac Pro. Yeah, I could see that working out well for you. Um, you know, Federico, you and I spoke about this years ago about the idea that maybe you would end up because you don't use a Mac very often. That maybe you end up with a desktop and just like have a place to go podcast and like kind of have it there. But you're using a MacBook Pro. Like, do you have any any sense of you know is the laptop the right Mac for you when you need it? Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess if I had a bigger space, I would like to have something like. Um, something like an iMac or just uh, if the Mac Mini ever got an update, I'd like to have a Mac <laughs> Mini and a big display. Um, I do find the display a little small for my taste um, just because I'm sitting down at a desk and I'm just I'm looking at multiple windows when I do podcasts because I need to keep track of the live chat and the Google document and Skype and talking to you guys. So it's a kind of task that I feel like I would prefer a bigger uh, viewing area. So I would prefer to have an iMac or a Mac Mini with a display, but um, this is not possible right now because I have a smaller, um, you know, I have a small desk and I don't want to buy an iMac. Uh, but to answer your question, um, when I do podcasts, I would prefer to have a bigger desktop computer, maybe in the mm-hmm. future. I don't know. I would prefer a Mac yeah. Mini, I think. A Mac Mini and a proper big like 4K display or something. Yeah, it'd be nice. And the Mini's so small, you can tuck it behind the display. Like It doesn't have to be out on the desk. Like it, You can have like effectively an iMac setup where you just have a display and a keyboard and a trackpad or something. It'd be great. What a world where the Mac Mini could exist. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's interesting, too, like talking to like pro users like our friends who are developers or designers. So many people use notebooks as their as their computer right exactly kind of like you were saying for like hooked up to a big display and uh, john basically what you do right like you have a display and a keyboard and a mouse and your macbook pro is kind of like off to the side somewhere but the imac right. pro and, and as good as the retina 5k imac has gotten it, it does seem like desktops still have a place in this world i think they do and uh i just i wish that apple would just give people more options like if you want a desktop Really, you just have the iMac and iMac Pro to choose from right now. The Mac Mini is not a viable choice. There's not a Mac Pro uh, that's worth talking about or buying. And so we can see that coming with the desktop. We know the Mac Pro is coming. Um, And like we talked about last week, hopefully this fall, they sort out the notebook line a little bit where it it makes the options make sense again. And someone who maybe doesn't need an i9 or maybe doesn't even need a quad-core 13-inch MacBook Pro but has, you know, $1,100 to spend can get a good option. So I think we're moving back in that direction, but it's just been a sort of a painful road to get there. All right. I think it's enough Mac, Mac talk. Uh, We're gonna talk about the home pod after I tell you about our second sponsor. This episode of connected is brought to you by simple contacts. It is great when an app takes a tiresome task and makes it easy. Simple contacts does this by being the easiest way to renew your contact lens prescription. You can order new contacts from anywhere in just minutes. All you have to do is complete their online self-guided vision test. It takes less than five minutes. No more doctor's offices, no more waiting rooms. 
Summer's here, and there are plenty of occasions you may need contacts. I don't wear my contacts every day. I wear them at most maybe once a week, but days that I'm, you know, outdoor activities, riding my bike, doing yard work, um, vacation where, like, you know, I just don't want to keep up with my glasses or I want to wear sunglasses. These sorts of things make it really handy to have contacts around, and Simple Contacts is a great way to stock up for the season. You can order your favorite contacts right from within the app or on their website. They offer all the brands you love with options for astigmatism, like, like me, that counts me in, multifocal lenses, colored lenses, and more. You'll be able to order exactly what you need from the palm of your hand wherever you are. The vision test is just $20, and for comparison, an appointment with no insurance could cost you over $200. Simple contact saves you money and time. But just to let you know, this is not a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. You still go do the one of those. Simple Contacts just checks that your current prescription still helps you see 2020 and renews your lenses based on that prescription. They're not writing you a new prescription or examining your eye health. I use Simple Contacts. Like I said, I've got astigmatism, so my options are a little limited in what contacts I can buy. They have the brand uh, that I use. I had my contacts in. I did the vision test click the button, and within a couple of days, I had a box of contacts sitting on my doorstep. I didn't have to go out of my way to make that happen. did it right on my iPhone. It really was, really was great. And as a listener of this show, you can get $20 off your contact lenses. Just go to simplecontacts.com slash connected20 or use the offer code connected20 at checkout. That's simplecontacts.com slash connected20 with the code connected20 for $20 off your order of contact lenses. We thank Simple Contacts for their support of this show and Relay FM. All right, so there was a report out uh, late last week about, and this is shocking, I know we've never had news from a home, HomePod firmware before, but some news about HomePod firmware. <laughs> uh, it seems like there's some internal testing uh, that is may bring some new stuff uh, to the HomePod. Uh, Federico, do you know what all is included in this, potentially? Um, yeah, so the rumor says that according to some engineers who are testing the, the feature and possibly talking to the press about it, uh, the HomePod will gain support for multiple timers. So that's one of the features that have been uh, people have been complaining about since the HomePod came out, uh, what was that, six months ago? I think around six yeah, months ago. Yeah, I think so. Um, so multiple timers, and you will be able to place phone calls directly using the HomePod instead of having to initiate the call from your phone and transfer it to the HomePod. Um, that's one of the features that I'm that I'm really excited about, actually, because uh, you know it's a, it's the perfect speakerphone. Um, and also, you will be able, it seems, to change Wi-Fi networks uh, instead of having to do the full reset or reset that you need to do now if you want to change the network that the HomePod connects to. Um, you know. Instead, you will be able to, I suppose, I have a setting screen where you will see the network that the speaker is connecting to and change that. Um, I wanted to talk about, you know, um, reading this rumor. Um, I mean, uh, maybe um, I'm the exception here because I have three of these things and I've actually considered a fourth one, but ended up buying a Sonos one. I bought the Sonos one, don't worry. Um, and, look how, and look how well it's treated you. So, uh, yeah, I know, right? right? None of this would have happened if, if the HomePod was alive. I mean, I obviously like the HomePod. Um, 
And I use it a lot. I use it a lot for um, music, of course, um, especially for since we got the stereo pairing set up in the bedroom. Uh, I have a HomePod on my nightstand and another right here on the desk that I'm using to record this very podcast. And we set it up as a pair. And now when we listen to music at night... Um, we you know it's uh we can hear the stereo effect and we have true room feeling sound um and the the best aspect is because the the speaker is shared on the same wi-fi network it means sylvia can also control music from 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 the music app and from control center and she didn't have to do any setup she just uses the speaker as a playback destination uh, which is great and of course in the kitchen I use the HomePod a lot for uh, setting timers for asking about my calendar schedule for controlling lights and other home kit scenes um and also for creating reminders, uh, which is something that I've been uh, experimenting with lately, especially because I'm writing my uh, iOS 12 review. And while there are not any reminders changes at all, um, reminders is a feature of shortcuts. And I've been playing around a lot with shortcuts actions that can automate reminders and integrate reminders with Siri and all the kind of stuff. So I've been saving reminders using the HomePod a lot. Um, and I wanted to ask you both um, how you use your HomePods now that it's been six months. Um, and even though you don't have three of them, I'm curious to know if you like it, how much you use it, and if your family likes it. Yeah, so there's not really a big update on mine. Uh, I shared on the show that you know we have multiple Amazon Echo devices <laughs> around our house. And uh, that's really the voice assistant that you know my family uses. News, multiple timers music, uh, HomeKit stuff, because uh, everything in my house that's smart home is HomeKit and Amazon compatible. I had unplugged the Echo, put the HomePod in the kitchen, and it didn't go over very well uh, with the family. Um, I think a lot of it being Siri-based frustration and sort of the lack of features that the Amazon Echo uh, Echo has. So, the HomePod is in my studio. It's where it's been since I tried that experiment. I do use it often in the studio, though. Um, I listen to a, uh, a lot of music on it. Even though I sit in front of an iMac Pro, the HomePod is actually directly behind me and sounds a lot better. So if I want to listen to music or if I'm you know, filming B-roll for something or like cleaning up the office, that sort of thing, uh, I very often will put music on. I also use it a lot for AirPlay 2 to listen to podcasts. If I'm, if I'm in the office and I'm not... If I'm not writing, I sometimes listen to podcasts while I work. And uh, very often I'll have my phone on the wireless charger on my desk and AirPlay to a podcast to the, the HomePod, which is really simple and straightforward to do. Um, and I use it a lot for HomeKit stuff. So everything but the overhead lights in here are uh, Hue lights. And so I have a couple different sets. So I have I can turn on my work lights, which just bring up the two lamps. I've got a lamp on either side of my desk. And then I have a scene called Studio On, which is those lights and the lights on the shelving for the collection and a light over on the other side of the room. Uh, I have a lamp, a three-light lamp that has hue color-changing bulbs in it so I can control those. It's a lot of HomeKit stuff. And, you know, I, I interact with it every single day. Um, and for me, that's, you know, it, it, it works well for that. I don't do a lot of stuff outside of that. I'm not asking it for news or weather or some of the other echo type things that my family does. 
my thought is now, if this rumor comes to pass and it's got multiple timers and so their stuff is improved, I'm going to give it another run, uh, having the HomePod in the house. I've become... I don't want really to get too far into this because it's really just like a feeling right now. Like I don't, I haven't made any real decisions, but I have just kind of become like increasingly uncomfortable with the echoes um, and some stuff that like Amazon allows on the platform. And Apple obviously has like a real big privacy stance that Amazon doesn't always have. And nothing bad has happened, right? Like this isn't, it's not even like a reaction to like that story that went around like a month ago about the echo sending. Uh, an audio message to like a coworker for, of a private conversation. Like, I don't know. Like, I just, I feel like I would rather have something Apple, like Apple writes the privacy policy to like in our kitchen or in our bedroom. And, uh, so I don't know like that. I don't know really what that is yet. Just like sort of like this thought that kind of rattles in my brain every once in a while. And so I, if after this update is out, I think I'm going to try the home pot again in the kitchen. If it takes off, then, you know, maybe we get one for the bedroom as well. And, um, you know, we, we sort of move away from the echo, but I don't know if that's going to come to pass. I really want to see how this stuff pans out and, and really the multiple timers is like the thing for us. Cause in our kitchen, we use the echo every single night when we cook almost seven days a week, we have multiple timers set up on that at once and you can name them, which is great. So it's like, Hey, you know, set a pasta timer for 10 minutes, set a sauce timer for 12 minutes and, you can ask it, hey, how much time is left on the pasta timer? Um, it's really well done, and Apple should just copy it. Like The Echo does it correctly. The HomePod should do it the same way. And if they can do that, then it would it would overcome a lot of the frustrations we have with it as a family. Do you use it at all with your Mac at all, Stephen? I mean, for, for instance, not so much for iTunes or music, but if you were watching a YouTube video, do you, do you connect your Mac and your, and your HomePod to listen to that? No, uh, mainly because the iMac Pro speakers are actually, are actually pretty good. Um, I've thought about putting some studio monitors in. I may end up doing that this fall, but right now I am just have the iMac speakers themselves. Like They're totally fine. If I if I'd play something on the AirPod, or on the HomePod, excuse me, Usually because I'm in the studio, but not at my desk. And I just want to have music kind of louder right. or less directional. So, but no, I don't think I've ever actually paired it to the Mac, to be honest. Yeah. My, my use of the HomePod is primarily for music too. And I've really liked it because for the longest time I had my Apple TV and it's still hooked up to a home entertainment system in my living room. And we have kind of a big open living room, kitchen space in our house. And so when I wanted to listen to music, if I wanted to use the Apple TV, I had to have the TV on, set to the right inputs, and then I had to, you know, click around on a remote and find the playlist and all that stuff. Now I can just, you know, ask the lady in a can to play my playlist and it happens. And it's a little thing, but it reduces a lot of the hassle. Like, you know, say the phone rings and someone has to answer. It's very easy to just pause the music with your voice instead of having to go scramble to figure out where the remote is and, and hit pause. Um, I used, I used, it used to bug me too that you had to see something on the screen when you had the Apple TV. It didn't used to be like that way back in the day on the Apple TV, but I had a hack where I created a giant black rectangle and used that as the screensaver. So I wouldn't oh, have to that's have the, good, John. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Hey, it's an, it's in a club Mac stories issue from way back. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's what I would do because, you know, if you have like people over 
and you're chatting and you've got all the you've got these screensavers going people are just naturally attracted like moths to the light and the image and they just end up standing there and staring at what's on your television so having that black yeah very interesting friends john <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i guess it probably does say something about me yes so yes now that doesn't happen right you just play it through the home pod which is great and i've thought about getting one for my office which is down in the basement uh but i haven't i haven't quite gone there yet i've got small speakers connected to my macbook pro and i play itunes through that um I think a HomePod would be nice. At first, I thought I wanted to do it because I could use the Siri integration and it would be a useful thing to do down in the basement, but I can use my phone for that. I don't really need the HomePod for that. It's really whether I want to have the better quality music down here. Um, Beyond music, HomeKit is probably the number two use that I have for my HomePod. Uh, I use, I use, uh, the HomePod to turn on my lights in my living room. And when I'm going down to work for the day, I'll tell it to turn the lights on down there. So that I use quite a bit and I'll set reminders, but beyond that, I don't do a lot. I don't, you know, add, I don't add tasks to a task manager that often. It's mostly just setting reminders when something occurs to me while I'm cooking breakfast or something like that. Yeah. Um, I really hope that we're going to see some meaningful improvements to the HomePod in September. Um, and I kind of wish that Apple had an open beta program. We've talked about this before, but even if it's just multiple timers and phone calls, I think I will be okay. Uh, what I noticed in my use of the of the HomePods is that while initially I liked the the ability to use uh, SiriKit uh, third-party apps, um, it is really annoying to to have to specify this syntax uh, when you want to do something with a third-party app. It's really verbose and it's really slow. And I also think I've mentioned this on Connected before, but if Apple ever does, you know, if Apple ever launches the ability for users to change default apps, um, instead of changing the, you know, the, the, the traditional idea of changing default apps, so changing the browser or the, your email client or your calendar... I would love to be able to change default apps for Siri. So instead of using, you know, the reminders uh, app as a default, I would like to use things or, um, you know, using a different um, music application instead of Apple Music. Um, because I feel like using SiriKit and third-party integrations on the HomePod, you can really feel uh, the, you know... the just how annoying it is to to have to specify uh, these little commands and this little syntax. Otherwise, Siri will not understand that will save data into the default apps. Um, Note taking is another is another example. Uh, so yeah, I, I I like the HomePod and I use it a lot, of course. And it's probably been a slightly bigger expense than it should have been because it's not available in in Italy yet. But overall, I think. Um, if Apple can continue to update it with new features and new integrations um, without having to release a new version of the product itself, uh, like a HomePod 2. Uh, I mean, I could see a smaller HomePod, uh, but I, I don't think Apple needs to do a new main HomePod now. Uh, and if if they can bring new features and maybe do a price drop uh, this holiday season, I think it's, you know, especially if you spend a lot of time in the Apple ecosystem, it's a really compelling product. Yeah, I, th- I think the comment about like always improving it is is key here for a couple of reasons. A, they they have so much ground 
to make up, to catch up, because they, they entered a market that was already up and running, like Apple often does. But uh, I think, too, I would like to see them be able to add things outside of the major iOS release cycle. And this is like a, a huge conversation we could have about iOS and macOS and everything, that Apple doesn't update things often enough that, you know, point updates can be a big deal, but big features are always in like iOS 12.0 or 13.0. But like if they have multiple timers ready, they should just push that out and not wait for a big release, especially on a device like, stay with me for a second. People don't think about the software on a device like the HomePod because they don't see it, right? We, We know that it has firmware and software and like has its own OS and it has all these things going on. It has a, a basically an iPhone. What what is it? Was in it a A8 or something processor in it? Yeah. Like it has a pretty powerful iPhone processor in it. Like this thing is do. It's a computer. It is a computer. But because we don't see the software, uh, we don't think about it. We just think about what the device itself can do. There's a, there's an abstraction there that is not present on something like the phone or the Apple Watch or the Mac where you either directly touch or manipulate with a cursor the software. And the software is the experience. The HomePod doesn't have that. The experience of the HomePod is Siri and what Siri can do. And I hope that we see them as things are ready. Hey, you know, maybe the release is like 12.1 or 12.2. Like, don't wait for 13 if multiple timers are ready. Don't wait for 13 if you have phone calls ready to go or you've overhauled Siri Kit in a way that makes it easier to, to work with. Like, whatever it is, because these devices are different from those other products. And I hope Apple can see that and treats them differently and evolves them, evolves the HomePod more aggressively than a big jump once a year. Because a year is a long time in this market because Amazon and Google are perpetually improving their products. Like you can sign up for an email every single Friday. You get an email from Amazon saying what's new with the echo. And to be fair, a lot of that's third party, but a lot of it's not. A lot of it is Amazon improving its voice assistant directly. And Apple needs to, I think kind of step up its game on, uh, on those things. If it can. Anything else? Any, any other HomePod stuff? Uh, I guess we should mention that they are today having a oh, yeah. <laughs> a public Q&A on the Apple dis- like support communities. It used to be called the Apple Discussion Boards, uh, where they're having Apple employees, support employees, talking uh, to consumers about the HomePod. Apple always has support reps sort of hanging out in those discussion boards and occasionally you'll see an answer by somebody who's like a little apple logo next to their name or whatever but this is like a like they announced it publicly and i haven't checked in to see how it's going i figured someone's gonna write the article so i don't have to like wait through the discussion boards but i just find that interesting that apple is like inviting like direct communication about this product because like when's the last time apple's done that like it's not in their wheelhouse um i made the joke in my blog post about it that People could ask Apple directly why Siri was so bad, (laughs) but, and I'm sure there'll be some of that. Why is it so expensive? Why is it not in Italy? Like all those sort of obvious questions, but I'm hoping to come out of this with like uh, some feelers on how like the rest of the community feels about the HomePod, because I think, I think, you know, Federico, I think you're an outlier in your use of them and your just sheer number of them. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of want to know what other people think about it. So I'm looking forward to seeing 
the inevitable articles about this Q and A today and kind of seeing where people, where people are. Yeah, it's kind of like a like a HomePod AMA or something. It's I, I took I, I took a I took a quick look before we started, and there's a lot of questions in there already. So I think it's supposed to start. If it's not starting now, it's starting very soon. Yeah. And just Tim Tim Cook at a desk um, answering questions about the HomePod. That's right. <laughs> yes, those support forms are really interesting. They've been around a long, long time. In fact, like when I was in college. I spent a good bit of time there, like helping people answer questions, and like I had to give it up when I became a, a retail employee. But I learned a lot of stuff there uh, in my early days of like Mac troubleshooting and understanding like how the system worked and everything. There's real value there uh, if you have time to to deal with it. I haven't logged in in, in probably ten or twelve years, but uh, I'm sure my old account is there with a bunch of advice about titanium PowerBook batteries. You know, in case you in case you need that. Do either of y'all need that? Do you have any questions about the titanium PowerBook battery? Uh, I just want to go back now and do a little bit of uh, Stephen Hackett retrospective on the titanium MacBook. MacBook? PowerBook. John. PowerBook, sorry. John, what's <laughs> well, a video about it? I'll, I'll add a link to the show notes. Um, okay, so we are going to do some connected Q&A. Uh, I thought it would be fun to have uh, have John on, answer some some questions, provide some answers. Those two things go together. But first, I want to tell you about our Final sponsor this week, this episode of Connected is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is the easiest way to start a podcast. You can record a high-quality show, host unlimited episodes, and distribute everywhere with just a click, and it's completely free. Anchor's app has some of the most innovative features around. So you can get voice messages from your listeners and integrate into the show. You can simply transcribe segments, turning them into videos you can share, like for social sharing and stuff. They're pretty neat. You can add audio transitions and background tracks, and they feature detailed analytics. So you can see how many people are checking out your show. And all that's in their mobile app and on the website. Plus, Anchor just rolled out the ability to record with up to seven friends anywhere in the world. And their audio quality is seriously good. You get high bitrate stereo sound, so all your episodes sound great. And all for all of you iPad content creators, uh, you get easy editing tools, multitasking support, and the ability to drag audio in from other apps, which is pretty cool. So go to anchor.fm slash connected to find out more about what Anchor can do for your new podcast. And if you sign up there, your show could be featured by us in a future ad. That's anchor.fm slash connected. Go there now and start your podcasting journey today. Our thanks to Anchor for their support of this show and for giving aspiring podcasters an easy way to get started. I have a question for you before we move on to listener questions. Um, Okay. I've been having this problem since last night. Um, my television turns on on its own and loads the Apple TV input channel. I have no hmm. idea what is going on. Uh, all I remember is that a few days ago, I, I have an LG 4K TV. Uh, it's the B50... I don't remember the name. Um, anyway, a few days ago, I opened the TV and I used the YouTube app of the TV itself because I find it better than the YouTube app for the Apple TV. Um, and I needed to update the YouTube app from the LG web store, which is this thing that runs inside webOS, basically. This TV has webOS in it. And when I was updating the YouTube app, it said... Um, Updating this app uh, will also turn on uh, wake on Wi-Fi or something like that. That I assume is a feature that can wake your TV when it's connected to Wi-Fi. Well, 
since last night, uh, the TV just randomly turns on. And it turned on at 4 a.m. and he woke us up and he turned on again at 7 a.m. and he woke us up again and Silvia was really upset. And eventually I was just in this in my sleepy state. I just rolled out of bed and I just unplugged everything, which, you know, I wasn't thinking straight. And then later I needed to, you know, troubleshoot my PS4 because it wasn't shut down properly. I just pulled the plug on the entire on the entire thing um, because <laughs> I was done. I was so upset. It was like, yeah, that, that's fixed. Yeah. We can go back to bed. Um but now I was looking through the settings and I cannot find this wake on Wi-Fi thing in the settings of the TV itself. And I cannot find I cannot understand why it's also defaulting to the Apple TV UI. Almost as if the Apple TV is sending some kind of signal to the TV, but I, I don't know why. I don't know why would it send any kind of signal. So um I don't know if you guys have any idea of <laughs> what could be going on here. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's what it is. Either the Apple TV or something on the network is like pinging the TV or like, you know, poking it in some way across the network. Right. And then the TV says, oh, it's time to wake up. Like, I'd imagine you could turn that off. It may be called like wake on LAN instead of wake on Wi-Fi. It may be in there somewhere. Um, surely there's a way to turn that off. Um, or if not, just do what John did and but print a big black rectangle like on a printer and tape a bunch of sheets together and then hang that over the front of the TV and the problem will be solved. Mm. Yeah, it, it could it could just be ghosts too, Federico. Okay. You know, you can't rule that out. You can't rule that out. Sure. All right. Now, um, moving on to connected Q&A. Um, uh, this is a question for you Mac people, I think. Um, so Nick writes... There's been a lot of buzz around the Surface product line lately. Do you think there's a market, technical hurdles aside, for a MacBook running macOS that could detach into an iPad running iOS like the Surface Book? I personally think it sounds like a very compelling product. Steven, would you like a MacBook that can become an iPad running iOS? And would Apple even release such a product? I think the idea of this product, there's two things here. One is the software. And... I think that with iOS apps coming to the Mac next year, that like that's really what people talk about when they say, "Oh, I want to run Mac OS or iOS." A lot of it is like, "Well, I want the iOS apps." Like, and so I think the majority of people who would want something like this, Marzipan iOS apps on the Mac, may be enough to keep them happy. The hardware side, I think, is is an interesting component of this too. Apple really seems allergic to like convertibles and touchscreen Macs and and that sort of thing. Like their notebooks are the same form factor as they've been for thirty years. And whether that's right or wrong, I don't I don't know. It's outside the scope of the question. But I don't see Apple making something like this from a hardware perspective, even if Marzipan wasn't a thing. But I think Apple's very conservative on its hardware design. Plus, you have iOS apps coming to the Mac. I don't think something like this is a, is in our future. What about you, John? You use both uh, yeah, an I, iPad and a Mac often. Uh, yeah, I, I'm right there with Stephen on this one. I, I think, though, too, that I'd, what I'd like to see, as opposed to the kind of convertible described in the question, is more laptop-like functionality built into the iPad mm -hmm. Pro line. So... For instance, a smart co cover with smart keyboard cover with yes. a trackpad, you know, some sort of cursor control, that sort of thing. Something that makes 
an iPad a little bit more Mac-like, so it comes a little closer to what the Mac is like. And then the Mac comes a little closer to what the iPad is like by bringing over the apps from iOS. I think that's more likely what we're going to see as opposed to an all-in-one mm -hmm. does-everything device. Yeah. Personally, I would love to have such a product. <laughs> I really think that the... You know, if you if it didn't run Windows... Um, I would be really interested in the Surface Book type of deal. Um, I really think that that Apple should look into this type of you know uh, device that can transform into a laptop or a tablet. Also, because they they are already kind of halfway there with the iPad Pro. They sell as a first party accessory a keyboard that transforms your iPad into a quasi laptop form factor so the idea is already there i'm not so sold on the concept of having one type of os when you're connected to a keyboard and loading another os when you're in mobile mode i don't think that's yeah i think that's only a recipe for disaster and asking <laughs> you know um but the idea of making adjustments to the ui for example, by making certain touch targets bigger, whether you're using a trackpad or a finger, I think that could be that could be interesting. Um, and it's it seems to me like the sort of feature that could be enabled if only you had a consistent UI framework between different OSs. Um, so I'm just saying, but I don't think Apple has completely mm -hmm. discarded this idea. I think before they do that, they want to have some kind of unification, not in the in terms of the OS, not in terms of unifying iOS and macOS, but unifying how um, the user interface can scale uh, to different form factors and to different sizes. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if Apple does something along these lines, but not in the way that Microsoft is doing it and not before late 2019 or 2020. So I guess we'll see and we'll, uh, we'll follow up with listener Nick about uh, whether or not Apple is doing a <laughs> Surface Book product. Um, what's next, Stephen? All right, so Tim writes... What can Apple do to make using the web on an iPad not a second-class experience with many sites that just don't work? Uh, basically asking, what would it take for the iPad to get a desktop-class web browser? Is it Apple's fault, or is it website creators lumping the iPad in with other mobile devices? Hmm. That's a good question. I think it's... Most people would say it's totally Apple's fault. I don't think it's totally Apple's fault. I think if you have a popular website, um, something like a banking website, for example, or, you know, just this week I was trying to buy tickets um, because Sylvia and I were going on vacation in August and we need to take a ferry to go to this island. And I was trying to perform the checkout process to see how much the tickets would cost and I couldn't use the buttons on the checkout page because they were not compatible with Safari so is it Apple's fault or is it the you know should we blame the company that makes the ticketing website um, I think the company that you know develop web developers that do that completely ignore uh, tablets or even touch the any kind of touch device at this point uh, are just not keeping up with the times or they're not doing a good job. Uh, I think there's also though a concern or a discussion to be had about whether or not Safari for iPad specifically should behave like a like a bigger mobile browser or like a desktop browser that is running in a touch environment and i think maybe apple could um make adjustments to safari on ipad in a way that it doesn't behave necessarily like safari for iphone 
I think it's incredible that uh, over eight years into the iPad, Safari still doesn't have a proper download interface for downloading mm-hmm. files from, from the web. Or that, you know, sometimes when you're, when you're using a, an external keyboard, there's a, there are problems, there are bugs that, um, uh, you know, when, when you, you have the shortcut bar on top of the software keyboard, um, and when you use an external keyboard on iPad, that shortcut bar is the only thing that you see at the bottom of the screen if you're typing into a text field. And the problem is that sometimes that shortcut bar can hide a website element. And so you need to do a lot of scrolling to make sure and a lot of pinching and zooming to make sure that, the, you know, that all the fields and the buttons that you need to use are clearly visible. Um, and also, you know, some, some folks who really don't like Safari for iPad would say Apple needs to have a cursor mode or some kind of desktop emulation mode to make sure that some websites can always be supported. And I think this is a discussion about whether or not Apple should accept the fact that some websites are never, ever going to be updated for touch. Um, And this is a topic that I don't think we can answer in this Q&A segment. I think you could make the same argument for Flash websites that they were never going to be updated. And Apple said, we don't care. We don't support Flash on iOS. And eventually, many of those websites were updated for HTML5. Um, Honestly, I don't know what the correct answer is. I don't think that having a fake trackpad, um, sort of like iCab Mobile does on on iOS. iCab is a third-party browser. I think it's got... uh, fake trackpad mode that lets you have a cursor in the browser and sort of have you know, desktop pointing control. I don't think Apple is going to do that. Um, but also I think they should be more... They should be more... If they're not, I, I don't know what kind of internal discussions Apple has about this problem, but they should be... I, I hope that they are open to hearing from people who say, my bank doesn't care about making my website, the, their website work on my iPad. Can you do something to help me? Because I really don't want to buy a MacBook just to use that website. So it's definitely a concern, especially if Apple is asking people and telling people to use their iPads as their only computers. Uh, and if those people come across a website that just doesn't work, who's to blame? Uh, if you're the customer, you blame Apple because you don't you don't understand what's going on. And so maybe the customer is always right and maybe Apple should cater to those problems and trying to figure out a solution to make sure that every website can work on iOS. But then again, it's a super complex problem and I honestly don't know what the... I don't think there's a single correct answer. I think it's a combination of factors and sh- uh, for sure web, you know, web developers should try and keep touch in mind when designing websites um, but also on the other hand Safari doesn't work well with the G Suite you know the Google web apps at all and the Google web apps the Google iOS apps sometimes don't offer the same features of the native clients that you can download on the app store so should Apple try and make Safari work well in desktop mode for Google web apps I think so I think they should make exceptions and I think they should try and make Safari more like Safari for Mac because I think it's incredible that on a 13-inch iPad Pro you cannot go to Google Docs on the web and use it like you can on a MacBook, a 13-inch MacBook. I think that's absurd. And I think it comes from a place of thinking of the iPad as a big iOS device, whereas I would think of the iPad as a small MacBook at this point. Uh, 
But yeah, I, I don't know what the correct answer is. Yeah, this is a very frustrating situation. I find, I run into this fairly often too. And, it, and I guess I'm a little surprised that the gap hasn't closed more quickly because to me it seems like, and, and, and a lot of what we're talking about here I think is cursor control and the ability to drag and drop things within a browser window. That's where at least where I run into it more often than not. And the reason I'm surprised that the gap hasn't been closed more quickly than it has is that this strikes me as a business opportunity, both for the web service developers as well as Apple. I mean, there's money to be made here. There are people who are doing all of their work on iOS devices. And the fact that you can't use some of these services on Safari mobile is it's long overdue. And I think, you know, it's, when this gets solved, it's not going to be solved just by Apple or by web developers. It's going to be solved by both of them making a few compromises and kind of meeting in the middle, I think. All right. What's up next? So uh, Ben writes, I recently went all iPad and I want to load some videos uh, that I've saved on my iCloud drive. Is there a better way to play those than using the files app because files app requires me to download the whole video before I can play it. Um, and it doesn't support things like picture in picture. Federico, do you have any suggestions? Well, the obvious one would be you can still save videos to iCloud drive, but hmm, uh, well, from iCloud drive, either you open the video file so you copy the video file into uh, another player uh, such as Infuse or such as MPlayer or I think even Riddle Documents has a video player um, so you open videos from Michael Drive into something else or you find a compatible video player that can open a video in place so without having to create a duplicate copy without having to copy from one place to another and therefore wasting storage on your device, you can uh, just uh, open a file using the native document browser and play uh, straight within the player of your choice. And I'm, and I think that maybe Infuse supports the iOS 11 files app, but the problem is that due to the way that uh, the files app completely abstracts um, download management from the user. You're always going to have to wait for files to be cached offline because even though you copy uh, a file into iCloud Drive, at some point, your device, without you knowing, will probably remove the download and display a tiny download icon. You know, the cloud with the downward-facing arrow? next to its title, meaning that if you want to, to watch that video offline, you will have to download it. So my suggestion, and I'm sorry, is don't use iCloud Drive because it doesn't let you control it doesn't let you control caching. It doesn't let you control downloads. And it's only the, the only app that natively integrates with it is, is files. And files, uh, you know, the quick look, that I don't think it supports picture-in-picture picture the way you want. Um, and also, it doesn't support many f different file formats. Honestly, I would just go with Dropbox, and that allows you to select which files you always want to have available for offline consumption, and it integrates with Infuse, it integrates with VLC. Um, so yeah, don't, don't use files, use something else. And don't use iCloud Drive, use Dropbox. 
Honestly, I'm surprised that Quick Look doesn't support picture in picture. I thought you were going you, it was possible to just click the home button um and put a video in picture in picture mode, but I guess the main problem is that files and Quick Look don't support something like MKV or uh, you know other file formats uh besides, you know, um H264 and H265 encoded ones. So, yeah, I don't think using files, if only for the caching problem, uh, is a good idea if you want to load a bunch of videos on your iPad. Uh, what I do whenever I travel is I down either download files with Dropbox because I have a ton of storage that I pay for, or I just copy everything into Infuse um, because I prefer the way that it looks and I prefer the way that it lets me manage you know, all my all my downloads. All right, uh, moving on. Adam asks Stephen, uh, are you going to buy or keep any silver Max from the current generation for your collection? I would guess most of yours are space gray by preference. Stephen, uh, what are you doing for the current <laughs> generation? It's, uh, I've thought some about this. More in terms of iPhones, because I generally don't keep, an, keep old iPhones because I sell them to a friend or a family member to help justify buying a new phone every year. Same thing with the Macs, right? Like, I don't have my last two MacBook Pros. Like, they were sold to friends or people on the internet or, you know, whatever, because I, you know, need to buy something new or want to buy something new. And so my general thought is, in bringing any machine into the collection, is that it needs to it needs to hit one of two criteria. It needs to be historically significant for some reason, whether that's because it's weird or interesting or was like the first of its kind or something that I have some sort of like nostalgia for. So like my power Mac G3 on one is not historically important. They didn't make very many of them, but it was important machine to me growing up. And so I wanted one. So at some point in the future, I'm sure a touch bar Thunderbolt three MacBook pro would come into the collection and if i were just going to do one i'd probably do space gray because it was uh it wasn't the first space gray mac i think that the 12 inch macbook had space gray first but it it's like the default color for this generation like all the press materials space gray when you go to order one space gray is the default option and i think this style of macbook pro space gray is sort of like the color people think about it uh, even though i like the silver mine is space gray um but I think I think I would probably go with space gray for those reasons. Um, but I don't really I don't think much about like current stuff coming into the collection. I figure that's a problem for like future Steven down the road. Like future Steven would love to have a, a trash can Mac Pro because that machine is super interesting and like a failure. And so historically, it's really sort of fascinating. Uh, but they're still really expensive to pick one up used, and so that's a that's a problem for like Steven and you know, 2028 20, or something like 10 years down the road, I can pick one up on eBay for a hundred bucks. Um, and so I guess check back in in 10 years and I'll tell you, but probably space gray. All right. Uh, we have another question for Federico. Uh, I use my iPad as a primary computer and I struggle with work images and graphics being mixed into my photo library. iOS heavily encourages to throw images into the photo library for easy access across applications do you have a workflow or some tools to clean up your library on a regular basis? 
Hmm. Yeah, there are there are um, workflows or shortcuts that you can create to uh, filter screenshots in your library and delete them. Or you can find apps on the App Store to just clean up uh, screenshots and remove clutter from your uh, library. But even in this case, my main suggestion is don't use photos for uh, screen for for assets that you need to put into a, another, you know, work apps or into a graphics editor. Um, and in this case, I would say try and save everything in, a, in folders in iCloud Drive or generally speaking in the Files app, even if you want to use Dropbox in Files. I try not to keep these kind of assets in photos because even though photos is great for, well, photos, it's not great for uh, organizing this type of, you know, um, stuff like logos or uh, you know templates that I need for my screenshots or for Mac stories or for automation even because I do a bunch of uh, image manipulation using shortcuts um, so even though it's really easy to save stuff into photos because there's a system-wide extension to save um, images and and videos into photos, I would recommend to try and use files because it gives you more freedom to catalog everything using folders, to uh, to use tags, to use uh, favorites, especially if you're using iCloud Drive, you can mark certain folders as favorites. Um, so I would say try, try not to use photos because it's really not designed um, to be that kind of um, utility to give you, you know, you, you could use albums, you could use um, the the like feature to organize uh, assets and screenshots that way, but I've learned not to trust photos for that kind of for that kind of workflow. So personally, I don't like to have my graphic graphics assets and screenshots um, mixed together with my family photos and my dog photos. So I try and keep everything separate. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. But if you do need to go back and clean up things, a couple of apps that you can use are Best Photos. And all, because that can do things like pull out similar photos, then you can pick one or two of among, you know, many, many multiple ones that are similar. And also Gemini Photos, which is from, uh, from MacPaw, which is a little bit like their Gemini product on the Mac where it pulls out duplicate files. But Gemini Photos, like you would expect, only picks out duplicate photos as well as similar photos, blurry photos, screenshots, all that kind of miscellaneous junk you might find in your photo library that you want to be able to get rid of fairly easily. So both of those apps work really well to help clean up a photo library. We have uh, another question, this time from Justin, who writes, why does Vitici release the iOS reviews once everyone already has the update? As a reader, it seems like it would be more useful to have a week or a couple of days beforehand to review to look at the review. Mm-hmm. Well, the simple answer is because I like it and because the day that iOS launches, all the attention is on me. Um, so that people have started to associate the day that iOS comes out with the day that my review comes out. And it's become a sort of a mini event, you know, for for those who care. And thankfully, there's enough people who care. Um, The day that iOS launches to the public, it's the day of the Federico review of iOS. And uh, if you paid attention in, in recent years, we've tried to expand what we do 
In addition to the review, you can find podcasts that we recorded about it. You can find the you can find the ebook version. You can find extras on on the Club Mike Stories newsletter. So there's a bunch of things that happen. It's become this sort of little media event, if you will. And I think it's you know publishing it on the day that iOS go the new version of iOS goes live is a sort of a free publicity boost uh, in the sense that iOS is in the, in the spotlight that day. And, and I've seen, uh, you know, I've seen people uh, share things like iOS is out and now you can also read Federico's review here. So the two things have started to sort of be tied together in the, in the, in the mindset of the audience. And I like it. I like it because there's this association between Apple releasing something and Mac Stories having the, you know, the, the in-depth review about it. Releasing the review a few days before would be probably better for some people, um, would give readers more time to prepare for iOS, but it would lose that it will lose that aspect of it's it's a it's a public event uh, iOS launching and it you know having it just be a random day before iOS goes live i think it would uh, in the long term it would negatively impact um how much mac stories and the review can be in the spotlight uh, on that day and it also it doesn't i don't feel comfortable publishing the review with tons of information about an OS that is still technically in beta, uh, even a couple of days before or a week before. Um, I've had problems with this stuff in the past many, many, many years ago. It was a different Apple. It was a different Mac stories. But I just feel better if my review goes out like a couple of hours before the new version of iOS launches. Uh, so it's a combination of things, but most of all, it's the fact that I see the iOS release day as a, as an as an event, and the fact that Mac stories can be associated with that, uh, you know, people remember, people think of Mac stories, and people think of my review on that day. I prefer I prefer to have it on, you know, to have everything together, and you know, I've I've, I've used this strategy for a few years now, and it's and it keeps working. Every year is better than the year before. Thankfully, I'm I'm really lucky that you know people still care about this kind of long form writing. So, even though I understand the the argument for doing another way, I I'm happy this way. I feel more comfortable this way, and I just I very from a very uh, personal perspective, I like the fact that people think of iOS release day with Mac Stories review day. Is, th- does that make sense? <laughs> it makes a ton of sense to me. I think all those reasons are valid. Yeah, I think that in a very busy Apple press cycle with an iOS release, I think the Mac Stories is at the top of that list. And so I think it makes a ton of sense from a business perspective. And and I agree with you, having a review out before the public release like feels a little weird with the NDA. Um, you know, I did that that thing about the dark mode in Mojave, which like following the letter of the NDA was not allowed. Uh, but I did it cause I, I thought it was interesting and, and people wanted to know about it, but I'm not sure I would do a full review uh, before the release is out. And, and the truth is mm-hmm. like there, there are going to be people who, who install it the second it comes out, but your review can also be part of their decision-making if they want to do it on, on day one or not, or if they want to do it, but then maybe tell their family, you know, I think giving people more information at the time they need to make the decision is good. 
And uh, so I, I don't see any issue with the way that you do it at all. Well, I think that does it, guys. We made it to the end of an episode. All right. If you want to learn more, check out the links in the show notes. You can do it in your podcast app of choice or on the web, relay.fm slash connected slash 202. Until uh, Mike gets back, we're having like a, a bunch of guests in, as you've heard the last couple of weeks. Uh, I think Mike is back actually next week. So, John, thank you for filling in uh, a couple of times. It's been a lot of fun to have you on. Sure, it's been fun. We will have you back. You can send us feedback on Twitter. Federico is at Vitici, V-I-T-I-C-C-I. You can find me there as I-S-M-H. And uh, maybe just, um, you know, Mike has been away. Maybe tweet at Mike. Uh, he's at i M-Y-K-E. Tweet him your favorite flower emoji. There's a bunch of flower emoji. Pick your favorite one and send it to him. <laughs> That's a good idea. I think he would like that a whole lot. So do that to Mike. Hold on. We need a, we need also, I feel like we also need a code word. Uh, so in addition to sending the flower emoji, say something, try, include your favorite Latin word. So an ancient Latin wow. word. You, you've made it a lot harder. <laughs> no, just flower wow. emoji. Well, that gives Mike that gives Mike something to Google later on. I guess exactly keeps him busy. So it, there's the flower and the Latin word. Uh, mine is going to be omnibus. Mine is going to be omnibus and the rose emoji. Right. So there you go. Some some culture, you know, some culture going on in this in these random requests okay. for our listeners. <laughs> Uh, well, there you go. There's that. There's that going on. Uh, you can find Federico, of course, he's the editor-in-chief at MacStories.net. You can find John at MacStories as well. Uh, John, in my head, your title is like manager of everything Federico doesn't want to do. Uh, is that Does that sum up your position at MacStories? Yeah, that's all enca- encapsulated within within editor, yes. Yeah, editor of MacStories. Editor is it's shorter. <laughs> it is. It's, it's a lot easier to understand. Yeah. Uh, and John, where can people find you on Twitter? They can find me at J-O-H-N-V-O-O-R-H-W-E-S. So many vowels in that last name. I know. They just keep coming at you. Uh, we'd like to thank our sponsors this week, Text Expander, Simple Contacts, and Anchor. And until our next episode, gentlemen, say goodbye. Arrivederci. See you soon. Adios. <laughs>